Well, a number of weeks ago, we started to take a look at the mission of Sunrise Community Church, which is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace. Beautiful. We're getting there. And so we did that. We looked a couple weeks at the mission, and then we started to look at how we sort of envision carrying out that mission. Doing so, introducing people to Jesus, helping them grow by his grace through community, through outreach, through worship, and through service. And so this morning, we're going to talk about sort of the third pillar of that vision, which is uh, worship. And we are called, if you know Christ and have trusted him, we are called to worship God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or our bodies. So uh, we're called to worship with our bodies, how we use our bodies. Do we use our, our bodies to serve or to suck? Right, to serve others with our hands, our feet, to serve God in such a way, or to, do we use our bodies to suck life out of people, and sometimes suck life out of ourselves? Do we uh, serve God with our minds? We are called to know God primarily through the study and the, and the preaching of his word, and so that calls for a mind, total mind engagement with his word. We're called to love God with our souls, the eternal part of ourself, that, to love him and his future grace. Worship him for his future grace, because one day we will be with him in eternity, communing with him while we currently live in a world that decays. And finally, we love God with our hearts and worship him with our hearts. We freely express emotions, feelings, uh, love through prayer, as well as through song. But when we speak about worship, you know, when we talk about it amongst friends, maybe as Christians, we usually do so like it's only this event, as we saw humorously portrayed in this video. Because we think of like an event, or only an event that occurs weekly, we tend, I think, to wrap up Uh, some of our desires, some of our hopes around this event. We want it to be good. We want it to be powerful. We want it to be enjoyable. And not only for ourselves, but I think especially for others. Maybe for someone you've invited to church this morning. Or maybe for someone you know who is new. Like you hang on every worship song. Oh, the technical difficulties. Ah, that's bad. Or I can't believe he said that in the sermon. So when we complain about a worship service, we often do so on behalf of others. But the irony is, friends, I think the others are the ones who so rarely complain. In college, I remember I brought a friend of mine to church who hadn't yet trusted Jesus. Okay, He didn't know God. He wasn't used to going to church. And so on the way in the car, I made a disclaimer. I told him, look, the music, it's kind of slow. Uh, it might seem kind of weird what people do. So we get there, and, and even worse things happen. We have the technical difficulties, right? I was disappointed, and I could tell that he knew it. He knew I was disappointed, and he could see it on my face. And after the service, I asked him, so, you know, what did you think? And he said, you know, the sermon gave me a lot to think about. And I said, well, what about the music and the singing? He remarked, yeah, you seem kind of uh, down about that, but actually it was pretty cool. And then he said to me one of the most insightful things I'll always remember. He said, look, 
when else do adults sing together? Right? Outside of being drunk at a karaoke bar. Alright? When do adults actually get together and sing? Alright? And then, the guy next to me in the pew was much better than like three 50-year-old old guys singing, you know, Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain at a bar, right? That's pretty bad. <laughs> but it was so relieving to hear that. And, and, and I think we get so focused on this is our time to worship. Right? This is the chance. This is the place for others to hear. I fear in doing that, we miss what the Bible actually says about worship. See, we really, uh, friends, we really live in this transitional era of worship. The way we worship God was never like it is now. And a time is soon approaching where it'll never be like this again. I'm going to explain what I mean, but this radically impacts the way that we live and the way that we try to love and worship God. So what I'm going to do is try to show you in the Bible the nature of worship as God intended. Then my friend uh, Lisa Wellman is going to come up front and share a testimony regarding some of the practicals and, and, and practices of worship specifically through song. Okay? But first, let's step back and try to uh, take a stab. Let's take a stab at defining the essence of worship. The essence of worship throughout history. Now, rather than give you a sort of hard and fast definition for worship, and there's plenty out there, you know, technical language, etc., I thought we'd, we'd look at a more informal uh, definition from a man who wrote 70 songs that found their way into Holy Scripture. And, uh, and he also once got so excited about worship uh, that he publicly danced in his PJs. <laughs> All right? And that was King David. So Psalm 27.4 is to me one of the, if you took a singular verse of scripture, of specifically of the Psalms, this is one of the ultimate verses to me in all of the Psalms, where King David says this, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. This is an amazing description of worshiping God. And given this, David's description informally here, we might define worship as that singular experience, that experience and expression of God's glory. What I mean by that is that, that experience of looking outside oneself with such singularity, with such nothing else matters to me, but beholding and experiencing God's glory that we can't help but in turn express it back to God. And not just through song, although we, we think about it that way, and that is crucial, but through every area of our life. And that's true of worship now, as it was then, but there's something about worship now that is qualitatively different from how it was then and how it will be in the future. So let's talk about worship now. We're going to talk about an old word for worship. And you're going to have to put your thinking caps on this morning, okay? Alright, and I'm going to help you with these thinking caps by giving you an easy question. Who knows what language the Old Testament was written in? Anyone know what language the Old Testament was written in? 
Right, don't be shy. You can raise your hand. We're all friends here. Yes. Good guess. Greek. Actually, you're partially true, but, but what, what's, what's the primary? When you think of the Old Testament, what's the, the main one you think of? Arabic. We tried all the great. This is good. We've got all the languages that the, that the Bible pretty much ever been written in. But our Hebrew last. Hebrew is the main language that, that people in the Old Testament would have seen, would have read, would have known. But that's true. There are actually, there's a little bit of Aramaic actually in the book of Daniel. And you actually answered my second question, Lisa, which we don't even need to mention now. There's another common language that the Old Testament was translated into. And that was Greek. It was translated into Greek for all these uh, Jewish people who came along at a time where it was the Hellenistic world. Everyone spoke in Greek. And so the Old Testament was written into Greek. And uh, specifically it was called the Septuagint. And it would have been the primary Bible read by Christ and his apostles. Because it was the Bible of their time. The Old Testament of their time. Now, the reason I bring this up is there is a Greek word that captured the idea of worship in the Old Testament. And that's a word, proskuneo. Proskuneo. And, and it means worship, but there's a sense very clearly in this word, which implied a physical bowing down before a visible majesty. And that's important. A physical bowing down before a visible majesty. Which happened in worship in the Old Testament because people worship at a physical place, a tabernacle or a temple. And there was this visible God who was often behind a curtain that you never saw. But it was this visibility to worship. There was a place, there was a time, and it was, it was physical. Alright, so get those key ideas in your mind. Time, fit, place, physical. So, this word is carried on when Jesus comes around. Alright, it's in the New Testament. Follow me on this. This word occurs 26 times in the Gospels. And then it occurs 21 times in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible that talks about the end times and when Jesus returns, okay? That this word only occurred one time in between. Given my definition I put up there, proskuneo, right? Time, place, physical. Why do you think... That this word only occurred one time in between. So it occurred 26 times in the Gospels, 21 times in Revelation, but only once in between. Because in between Jesus' resurrection and his returning, there is no visible majesty to bow down to. In other words, the Old Testament had worship that was located primarily at a temple, at a place in Jerusalem. Alright, visible. Then the visible, tangible Son of God comes along, right? And He is to be worshipped. And then, after He rises from the dead, we are told that He will come again, which Revelation speaks of. And, and at that time, faith will give way to sight as we behold the risen Christ face to face. But now, we live in this time in between. Does that make sense? And so, this idea of proskuneo right now is not a reality. The main word for worship used in between the first and second coming of Christ doesn't revolve around what is visible, what is physical, nor is it event-oriented. It's not necessarily event-oriented. Now, 
having explained this, I want to give us a, a, an actual example in Scripture of how we see this play out. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 19. Christ hints at this kind of worship in John 4, 19 through 24. Turn with me there, if you would, in your Bibles. Jesus is in this, the northern part of Israel, the remote regions, northwestern part of Israel, a place called Samaria. Okay, and he's talking with this woman there who's a Samaritan. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. In other words, they worshipped here in this different place. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. It is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Okay, so two keys we see here to this transitional era of worship we live in, and that's verse 20 through 22 and verse 23. First, verse 20 through 22, this woman is right to say that worship is to take place in the temple in Jerusalem, right? She's got the right idea. She says, you know, our fathers, we say we can worship here, but you Jews, including you, Jesus, say you're to worship in this place at this time, at this visible place at the temple. And Jesus pretty much agrees with her. And he is referring to this proskuneo kind of worship. But he also acknowledges in verse 21 that this kind of worship is about to change. And he elaborates on that in verse 23, which is key. He says, woman, the hour is coming and is now here. Which gets kind of confusing, right? I remember uh, in high school, we had to read uh, Charles Dickens's uh, The Tale of Two Cities, this famous book that opens, we had to read this out loud, I remember in class, and it opens by saying, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Right? I remember one of my friends next to me saying, well, come on, which was it? Right? This is confusing, be clear. Similar idea here. Jesus, which, which is it? The hour is coming? It is now here. That's because it's both. The hour still hasn't quite come because Jesus is the God on the scene. He's there in the flesh, visible, to be worshipped. But his death and resurrection ushers in this time when he puts the Holy Spirit, God, inside of those who trust him. So that we carry around in us always and everywhere God to be worshipped. Do you see that? His death and resurrection, by trusting in him, he puts the Holy Spirit in us. Which means we carry around the God inside of us, the Holy Spirit. Which means we can worship him always and anywhere. We can connect with him. Anytime, any place, spiritually. Jesus ushers this in to our lives. So worship between the first and second coming of Christ is an any time, any place, spiritual opportunity to experience and then express glory. And when I saw this in Scripture, okay, you can take your thinking caps off for a second. But when I saw this in Scripture, man, it blew my mind. Because, you know, someone can tell you something, 
And you can agree with it. Like, so for all my life, people told me that worship, you can do worship anytime, any place. And, and you see this even in churches, right? Like you walk into a church, you're like, oh, this is just how it goes. You've been in church long enough. People, you know, will worship God through organ. They'll stand. They'll sit. They'll play guitar. They'll play the gazoo. I don't know. They have, they have videos up on the screen. All right? So intuitively, you hear this. But it's a whole different thing when you see it and have a conviction from God's word. And that's what I wanted to get across. This is probably not new information that you can worship God anytime in any place. But have you seen it in God's word before? Have you understood why that is? And when I saw that, had that conviction, man, it blew my mind. Even in God's word, the very word for worship changed for the era we live in now. Because we have this privilege of worshiping God anytime, any place, through the Spirit. So, using a different word, obviously, than proskuneo, after the Gospels, Paul in the New Testament mentioned the following as acts of worship. Alright? So, just do some examples, alright? Words of praise and thanks. Hebrews 13.15, that can be worship. Uh, Good works in everyday life, Hebrews 13.16, that is worship to God. Uh, New followers of Christ are acceptable offerings of worship. So so just trusting Christ is an act of worship. Romans 15.16. Money that, that church is sent to Paul. 2 Corinthians 9, 12-13. That was worship. So giving is an act of worship. Then Paul often took that money and gave it to churches in need. Act of worship. Paul's own death for Christ. His own death. 2 Timothy 4, 6 was an act of worship. What we should get the sense of here, friends, is a sense of great freedom. That worship can be experienced in the heart and expressed in more ways, in more places, in more times than people really ever had the privilege of doing. In the Old Testament, and in many ways even in eternity, where worship will be unified and very singular as we worship the bodily Christ in heaven. But... Here's the rub. You and I, we don't really always want that kind of worship. In fact, frequently I would say, if we're being honest, we don't want that kind of worship. During the week, I am free to worship Christ anytime, anywhere that I want. Yet inwardly, because of sin, I often prefer Old Testament worship. What do I mean by that? I'm not going off killing goats and lambs. Nothing like that. Nothing crazy. What I mean is go to the temple, perform my external rites and sacrifices, get a good feeling of remembering my sins or atoned for. I'm forgiven with God. I've got a good feeling that I've come to church. I go home and do my own thing. I prefer, in many ways, that kind of worship. Why? Because having checked worship off my list... I can get on with my life. You know what I mean? Well, in my life, by the way, without worship is a life of habitual self-centeredness. Uh, Katie and I are part of a, a community group here at uh, Sunrise that, that meets right after this service. 
And uh, we camp out in the foyer out here. We have lunch together, and thankfully we have child care. We do it after the service on Sundays because most of us have young kids. All right, and, and nights are just not good. Like people have different bedtimes, and it's hard to coordinate, and, and you know, no one wants to go back into town, all those things. So we suck it up, and we have community group after church. And I'm making it sound like it's miserable. It's not. But three hours is a long time to go to church, right? And in fact, someone in our group even said that last week. Someone who said, three hours is a long time to go to church. I'm like, yeah, man, I hear you. And, and I often think that, especially since I saunter into the Harkwell Theater at about 8.30 every morning. So for me, it's something like, you know, uh, four and a half hours of Harkwellness, okay? And uh, I specifically think, oftentimes, between preaching and thinking about community group, man, I'm, I'm, I'm done with church. It's kind of tired. What am I really saying when I say this? What I'm really saying is I'm, I'm done with worship. I'm done with living a life of worship. All right, God, I'm ready to do my own thing. Okay, it's about, it's about me now. I'm done. You know what I mean? Now, the irony about this, according to Romans 1, is that checking worship off the list is just turning to another form of worship. Worship of self. So it's not as if you stop worshiping. It's just you go and worship yourself and your own needs. How do we avoid this? How do we look outside ourselves and continue to worship freely? Not just here, but outside these doors. How do we keep worshiping freely at 1 p.m., at 2 p.m. today? How do we do that? I think the key to worshiping freely in spirit and in truth is just radical honesty, friends. First with God, but then by extension with others, with his people, and, and sharing that honesty with them. So instead of turning your complaint inward, right, where it gets bitter, turn it outward and upward. You know what I mean? Turn it upward first towards God. Okay, so in my situation, about to have community group, okay, God, I preached today, I worshiped, uh, I'm tired, I got nothing left in the tank. You brought me here, though. Please help me. Right? Just that kind of honesty where you're just like, God, I don't even sometimes want to be here. So please help me. And sometimes it's helpful even to say that to another person. Like, man, just pray for me. And just be honest. I don't feel like worshiping anymore. See, honesty puts us in a position where God must meet you or you're not only stuck in the pit, but now other people know about it, right? Because if you're honest, not only with God, with other people, not only are you still in the pit if God doesn't meet you, but then now everyone knows about it because you were honest about it. Oh man, <laughs> whoops. It's, it can be humiliating. Like, man, things stink for him. But here's the promise we get in our passage this morning. Look at me in verse 23 of John 4, where Jesus tells us the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
That doesn't mean he wishes to have more people worship him. That's sometimes what we mean when we say seeking. But it's the true sense of seeking that he is actively pursuing people to worship him. He is seeking people. He is coming to meet people by his spirit. See, you must trust that he will meet you when you put yourself out there. Right? When you are honest with God, that he will come and meet you. And not in some like formulaic way like, God, here we go. I'm going to come meet you. I know you're going to come. I'm going to do it again later today probably. You're going to come. It's not this formulaic kind of thing, but it's, and it's not because he has to, but because you trust that he is a God who shows throughout his word and in our lives, who takes initiative. Right? Who pursues, who seeks and if nothing else, when you doubt that, you remember that he proved that through Jesus. That he wasn't a God who said, worship me even though I'm going to stay in heaven. Even though I'm not going to meet you. He sent God in the flesh, Jesus, initiated with us so we might know him. We have to trust that God will meet us because he's initiating God. You know? Be honest, authentic kind of worship. There is, however, another problem. Kind of on the other extreme. The other extreme that misses the mark of worship is what I'll call lawlessness. Some of us don't really struggle so much with checking worship off our list. We just have no checklist at all. We never have. In other words, some of us say we're so led by the Spirit But we don't really mean freedom so much as we mean lawlessness. No law applies to my my life. So Paul starts Galatians chapter 5 saying this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burned again by a yoke of slavery. Awesome. Awesome verse. We are free in Christ. No one can put an obligation on us. So what we start to say is, no one can tell me what to do. But then look what Paul says at sort of the end of this thought in verse 13 of Galatians 5. He says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Some of us say, Man, I'm free. So I don't listen to what people say. I don't listen to people who try to change my mind. I don't listen to their interpretation of the Bible. I know what the Bible says. You can't put an obligation on me. When really someone is just speaking a truth that you may need to hear. Really someone's interpretation of the Bible is actually the plain and simple, legitimate interpretation that you just don't want to hear. Because it's going to restrict something you want to do. It's going to restrict maybe indulging in the sinful nature. Jesus uses this kind of truth telling, this kind of honesty in our passage this morning. Check this out. Just before what we were reading, he's talking with this woman, all right? And she's kind of staying on the surface of things, all right? She's staying here. In fact, she's kind of using church talk with Jesus, right? Yes, Jesus, I know what you're talking about. Look, here's the way we worship. Here's the way you worship. He's kind of using this with Jesus. And look what Jesus says to her in verse 16 of John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Yikes, okay. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Friends, in order to worship in spirit and in truth, you need to confess the five husbands. To come clean both before God, and really I would encourage you before at least one other person in your life, that thing you've let nobody touch. You don't let anyone touch that because you're protecting it. Now that might be a very obvious thing. It might be the fact that you are having someone who's not your husband in this story. To confess that. But it also might be something you've called freedom. But really it's indulging in the sinful nature. Right? It's, it's kind of a good thing or an okay thing, but you've made it into an ultimate thing. You've put it in the position of God, and you will protect it at all costs. So when someone says something, maybe through a sermon, maybe it's even this morning, you're like, uh-uh. He can say anything, but don't say that. You're not going there. Or a friend says something to you, and that's when the claws come out. If that happens, friends, you might be indulging. It's a good chance you're indulging in the sinful nature. You've called it freedom. You've said, oh, I can do that. But really, it's just worship of self. The woman, well, first of all, friends, when you, when you have these moments, I encourage you, be honest with God about it. Tell the truth of what's really there in your heart. And I'm telling you, friends, I have had very few times being honest with the Lord where it hasn't ended in worshiping Him. Because He breaks your heart. He see, you see your sin, but you also see how He meets you there and forgives you and is kind and gentle with you. And it allows you to worship him. Both in your heart, but also in your lives. A heart of worship and a life of worship. And friends, look, this is a really cool thing. This woman in John 4 actually experiences that. Having the truth laid bare, right, to her and in her heart, ultimately that results in her worshiping. She goes and tells an entire town about Jesus. Right? And then John says, it's in verse 39, that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. You hear that? Which we heard earlier is a sacrifice of praise to God. New believers in Christ. Worship. Because the truth was told to her and the truth was laid bare in her heart. It resulted in real life worship in spirit and in truth. Do you see that? Honesty, truth-telling. A journalist assigned to uh, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Bureau, takes out an apartment overlooking the Wailing Wall at the heart of Jerusalem. Every day, when this journalist looks out, she sees an old Jewish man praying vigorously. So the journalist goes down and uh, she introduces herself to the old man. She asks... Man, you come every day down to the wall. How long have you done that? And what are you praying for? The old man replies, I have come here to pray every day for 25 years. In the morning, I would pray for world peace and then the brotherhood of man. I go home, have a cup of tea, and I come back and pray for about what's in my own heart, as well as the eradication of illness and disease from the earth. 25 years. I'm doing that. And the journalist is amazed and says, 
How does it make you feel to come here every day for 25 years and pray for these things? The old man looks at her and replies, like talking to a wall. (laughs) Now, the wailing wall, in all honesty, is the last remnant of Old Testament worship. People come Hundreds come daily to this part of the temple expecting God to hear their honest cries and their deepest secrets. But for many, it's like talking to a wall. We often come to church on Sundays expecting to have an amazing connection with God. And yet sometimes we walk away feeling like there's just a wall between you and God. All the while, though, neglecting true worship during our weeks. Perhaps the possibility of any place, any time, free worship during your week can become an actual reality by starting with a healthy dose of truth-telling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning. And it is an opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I should say that worshiping In your church is crucial. Worshiping with the body of Christ every week. Uh, Your word says, encourages us to not give up on the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Lord, it is great to gather with your people. Worship together. Learn from your word. You call us to do that. But it is only one opportunity you call us to. And my fear is we sometimes look to church, i.e. 10 to 11, 15 on Sunday mornings, to connect us with you. And my fear is we just check it off a list. And don't experience the opportunity to worship you throughout our week in spirit and in truth, any place, any time, because of your spirit that lives within us. And Father, for others of us who so agree with this, that, that we are so free to do this, that it really doesn't, I have so much freedom, it doesn't, I don't have no law to myself. No one can tell me what to do. God, I pray you would convict us or we've made a good thing into an ultimate thing, or we've hid the reality of having five husbands. Help us be honest with you about that and meet us there and forgive us, Lord, so we might truly worship. There might be no obstacle to our worship. Worship in spirit means we can worship at any time, at any place. But I think... We often think of worshiping just being a feeling thing, an emotional thing, but the key to seeing worshiping in spirit happen is seeing worshiping in the truth happen. Father, I pray that your truth would unveil our hearts. Father, as a church, and I pray that you would use us being truthful about our feelings and about ways we self-indulge, ways that we just serve ourselves. We do it because we want you to be met by you, to forgive us and show us grace that we may worship you freely. In Jesus' name, amen.